Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. So I say to write is write. I say to actors, act any way you can. Performers, perform wherever you can. And learn your craft. And that's the advice. And get, if you had to fall in love, and you got to have your heart broken. If you haven't had your heart broken, what kind of shows you're developing? All right, very excited about this today. My guest is somebody who is near and dear to my heart. One of the few people that I can say is just blown me away in my career throughout the times that I've gotten to see him produce uh, television shows. He's credited for basically creating Saturday morning television on NBC with a little show called Saved by the Bell which has basically been seen in hundreds of countries all over the world. He went on to do so many shows that went to syndication. By means syndication, it means at least a 100 episodes produced and sold in syndication. Not only did he do Saved by the Bell, he did California Dreams. He did Hang Time, USA High, City Guys, and along the way... He uh, worked with me in creating uh, Last Comic Standing with Jay Moore, a guy whose logo is a heart that was drawn by his children. And I assure you, as we begin this interview today, this guy has more heart than anybody I know. Welcome, Peter Engel. Hey, it's nice to be here, Barry. Let me respond to your opening. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I got a little dirty there for you. Well, I wrote it. I had to write I happened to just write the chapter in my book, uh, which is called I Was I Was Saved by the Bell. I wrote that chapter entitled When You Have the Network by the Balls, which I only had twice out of 16 series. What was the other time? The other one was City Guys. We had developed it for Fox, and it was such a battle between the two giants, you know, business affairs of NBC. And I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I know I had my company then at NBC, which they owned half. We had our own people and our own staff. I said, we'll just pay, we'll write the script ourselves. We'll, uh, we'll pay me and Scott Gordon are writing it. And by the time we finish the script, I'm sure the deal won't be done. 
and it wasn't. And I said, so I now NBC gets a hold of the script, even though they're my partners, and they want it for NBC, and Fox wants it for whatever they're doing, right? And it was great because I had. It's great because I had two giants uh, fighting over the script, and we did it for five years, it turned out, 105 episodes on NBC. But to respond to your thing about getting the person a little bit pregnant, um, when Kevin called me in the car, he said, I hear you really got, you blew your top. I said, no, I was fine. It was Barry. Kevin Riley. Kevin Riley called me on the ride home to, to Santa Monica from the uh, taping, and I said, I'm fine. He said, why are you fine? And I said, because I'm, we have a meeting tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock with your fraternity brother and best friend, the president of ABC. Steve McPherson. And Steve McPherson. And he said, well, why would you do that? I said, because you guys, I don't trust you guys. I don't like the way you deal. I went from eight to a pilot to a penalty. <laughs> I, 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 he said, well, Zucker wants to know why we have to do a pilot now. I said, because I'm going to ABC tomorrow. <laughs> Jeff Zucker being yeah, the president yeah. of NBC at so, the time. It, we go in and we show the sizzle reel, which is spectacular. You couldn't really tell the difference between Little Richard and, and Tanya Tanya Tucker and and and, and, and Howard Stern, and Howard yeah, Stern, and, and Britney Spears. You couldn't even tell the difference. It was the real one or Elvis and Sinatra. And so we we look at the sizzle. He looks at the sizzle reel and he looks at me and he says, "Why didn't you take Zippy's offer?" <laughs> Zippy, who's who's Zippy? Well, he had such a bad. He had worked. Steve had worked at NBC, and Zucker had never, in his opinion, honored him. And the truth of the matter was, Zucker was always straight with me, and a lot of people didn't feel that way. I didn't agree with some of the things he did, but he never lied to me, as opposed to Kevin, who's lying to me for Zucker. <laughs> and and uh, but he was straight. He really was straight with me. And it turned out I said, Zippy, who's Zippy? <laughs> he said, Zucker, I knew when he <laughs> said, why didn't you take Zippy's offer? Because he knew we had an offer on the table from NBC. I could have sold him this bottle of water. <laughs> it didn't matter what we were selling just for him chance to say, why didn't you take Zippy's offer? <laughs> and we and it was good. He said, we'll have fun. And it was fun. The first three weeks were terrific on the air, and then they took our two-hour premiere of Last Comic Standing when we were really coming back strong, and we always went 8 to 10. Never went, uh, I mean, always always 9 to 11, never 8 to 10, and they put us against, we took our two-hour and put it against uh, the imposter or and they destroyed us. <laughs> yeah. So I got them for three weeks. We got them for three weeks, and then they got us. That's right. With our own show. And what's odd was that when we did the um, the show, The Imposter, which was uh, changed, the name was changed, The Next Best Thing, this was what was a very difficult thing for Peter and I to accept as well, and something that was very odd is that on ABC that summer, our show was like the most watched show <laughs> on the network. I mean, you know, 10 million, 11 million people were watching the show. The problem was that they were all 50 <laughs> to 60 years old. Well, there was a reason for that. All our finalists were dead. We had <laughs> Sinatra, right. we had Elvis, we had Lucy. And the only one they didn't, we, we Brittany, they wouldn't let us put on, but she was a transsexual. That's right. We didn't tell them she was a transsexual. Okay, and she... Was the best. The best. I mean, Brittany, she was better than the real Brittany. The best. And we came down and they look at her person, whatever they signed. I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they would, and she might have, we couldn't get the young 
we couldn't get the young viewers because most of the impersonators were doing Sinatra and, as I said, Lucy and Elvis. And we had two Elvises in the final. A young Elvis and an older Elvis. Right. And a drugged Elvis. That's right. <laughs> without, sounds without drugs. And, and they wouldn't let us do Britney, who might have given us. Yeah. Uh, but, and, but the whole audience was old. But it was amazing. Or dead. But, uh, or dead. <laughs> but it was just amazing to know that you could have the most viewers – an entire network, whether it was half hour or hour or whatever, for your shows, but you still got canceled because the average age of the audience was four tennis balls. <laughs> that's right. That, that, we didn't come. That's right. We weren't canceled. We just didn't get come back. Uh, we we did all of our. I remember we went in to try and get it to keep it going, get it for another year. And I said, it's the best finale I ever did. McPherson says, what are you talking about? I said, we had Lucy, <laughs> we had George Bush, we had Paris Hilton, we had. Um, Sinatra, we, we had Neil, you know, we had them all, all the great dead ones. It, it was a great one. So um, before we go on to sure. a lot of different things here, I think uh, our audience will love to hear of your beginnings uh, uh, because uh, you have a fascinating story before you ever got in the business of where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in I grew up in New York City, Manhattan, which was the 50s. Three great center fielders, DiMaggio, I mean, Mantle, Snyder, and Mick and Willie Mays. And, um, and I knew at 12 years old, Milton Berle, this is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to. Where'd you see Milton? Did you on, see it? On the Texaco Playhouse. I mean, theater, whatever yeah. it was called. And it was a variety show. And I said, this is for me. And so. Well, uh, how, how did you, how did you decide? I want to do this. I want television, did you, did not you, movies. Did television. you know how? No. Okay. <laughs> I thought there were people inside. Before, I thought there were people inside the radio. <laughs> now I thought there were people in the back of the television. And so I was at NYU, film school. Let's stay back there because okay. I'm going to share with you that oh. you, I believe you grew up with Bernie Brillstein. Now, Bernie, of course, uh, was one of the greatest managers Legend. of all time. He was part of Brillstein Gray with Brad Gray. He represented everyone from Belushi to Lorne Michaels to Jim Henson to you name it. Bernie was five years old. Five years older. Bernie was my older brother's friend. And we lived in a building called the El Dorado on 90th and Central Park West, which was two towers, but it was a big a courtyard in the middle. And we were 4C, and Bernie was 3B. And he looked exactly the same, except he didn't have the white beard. And he was a great athlete at all. He was a very heavy set, set guy, great athlete. And Bernie would announce the news. Mrs. Engel, the Korean War's over. Mrs. Engel, Mickey Mantle. <laughs> he would scream in the courtyard, just like he did when he was here. And actually, Brillstein Gray was Brillstein. And then he took Brad in. That's correct. And, and so Bernie, my brother would never take me anywhere. But Bernie would take me with the older guys to the Ranger game Sunday night. He took me to my first Dodger game at Ebbets Field. And when I went off to the Army, Bernie was the only one who showed up to, to see me uh, off. And it turned out, years later, after NYU and after New York, Bernie and I moved out here the same day. And we were both staying at the Beverly Regent Wilshire. How old were you when you moved out here? 20... 
eight, and maybe. the goal went. So at tw- you waited till you were twenty. No, I came out on a job. I my company I was working for was transferred me out here. What kind of job was that at the time? I was. Uh, it was a syndication station group. Got it. And, and I, what was Bernie doing at the time? At Bernie 28? had just moved out. He was part of Management Three with Jerry Weintraub and um, Marty Kummer. And they sent him out here to open a West Coast office. So you come out at the same time. And, and- I were going to dinner, and there he is uh, with his wife. And I was there with one of my wives. <laughs> <laughs> First blonde wife. <laughs> I have three. And, and, um, and uh, he, they had at that time Frankie Lane. Your, your, all your wives were great housekeepers. They all kept the house. That's true. <laughs> That's very good. In fact, she just sold the house for millions of dollars, <laughs> which I get nothing because <laughs> I've been gone for a while. Um, so you're in the, so you're in L.A. and you decide that you really want to make a mark on the business, and and, and it wasn't going to happen with the company I was with. I knew that it was Capital. It was uh, Triangle, which was Walt Annenberg's company. And they um, were set, uh, while I was with them, they were bought by Capital Cities, which then bought ABC. I knew it wasn't that. And, and Bernie, well, the first job was a page at NBC, if you want to hear about that. Yes, and that was in New York. That was when I was at NYU. Yeah, so when you were at NYU, you were a page at, at the Tonight Show with Jack Parr, or was yes. it? Okay. Yeah, so, Hudson. And being a page, you got paid. You didn't intern. It was a paid no, no, gig. No, got paid. I wanted to be a page. And I was a shy guy in those days. I was at NYU film school, but television, right? And, you know, my parents had all kinds of friends who had a connections. Zero. And they, as it turned out, they got 14,000 applications a year, and they took seven. And it was to be an NBC page because uh, – uh, Dave Garraway had been a page, Gregory Peck, Tom Brokaw was the head of the pages when I, so what happened was. 14,000 applicants, seven. Yeah, yeah. And they don't take applications in person, which I didn't know. So one day I said, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta keep moving. I was just, it was junior in college. So I take the subway from NYU up to 30 Rock. And I go to the desk and I say, I want to be a page. So, all right, go up to the second floor. I go up to the second floor and I meet the head of the pages. And he says, why? I said, because it's television. Everyone at film film school wants to be in film. I want to be in television. And I need this job to round out what I'm doing. It's going too slow for me. And I'm talking and talking. This is my passion. And he said, we only take (laughs) – we don't take – we don't t- nobody comes in person until I said, well, then I should get the job since I'm the only one here. And he looks and he says, can you start training Monday? One of the guys we picked uh, dropped out. I said, really? Really? I was really? And I was in. Now, this is, I want to stop you because for our listeners and viewers, this is what truly this podcast is all about. You got a young guy in college. He knows that they take seven people out of 14,000 he knows that they take a written application but he says you know i'm going to push forward i i can do this i, I have a shot at this i need this i have to have and that this. was not my personality at the time and it was not his personality <laughs> he goes up there he meets with the person they say we only take written applications and we take people in person he said well i'm here in person he forces the issue more and he's persistent 
and his personality and however he did it got him the gig. And he leapfrogged over maybe a lot of other people that could have been more worthy than him of that job. Maybe people who went through the system and did the system the way they were told to do it. But he didn't. He said, fuck the system. I'm going to do oh, it my I way. Say, fuck on here? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yes, you are. You can do whatever you want. Um, so, and that's what I think should be noted. And right in the beginning, to me, that was a huge seminal moment for you because that was the moment when, in my humble opinion, where you realize that following the rules all the time doesn't work. And my winning formula is here now. I've proven that I don't follow the rules and I won. And there's going to be many examples in this podcast talking to Peter that <laughs> he'll share with you a tremendous <laughs> stories where he bucked the system and didn't do things the way people tell you to do them and won. So keep going with the, uh, the page thing for a well, second. Well, and being an NBC page was it because uh, ABC and CBS, but it was the 30 Rock with the uniforms and the braid. I had red braid, which meant I was nighttime. And, but on Saturday, so I'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, and I wouldn't have to go to the Tonight Show except Thursday, but I didn't have school on Friday. So I'd get an upper floor, like eight, eighth floor, famous 8H, and you could, once, the, once the shows were over, you could study at your desk. 8H so, being the floor that... Saturday Night Live. That's right. It was also Tuscanini. It was also Mary Martin in, in Peter Pan. Uh, it was... And the lucky, all kinds of big specials, but um, and so I was a page. And I, one of my duties was every Saturday was to go to the Ziegfeld Theater at nine in the morning and be on the stage door with four of the pages for the Perry Como show, which was live at eight o'clock. But you'd be there all day. Oh, got it. Right. Okay. That's where I learned everything from Bob Finkel and whose daughter worked for me on a couple of shows like years later, and. And I was usually in charge of stage door. And then the pages, the rest of the pages come down and they put a couple of thousand people in there at night. So the stage door was sacrament. Well, one of the great things, whatever comedian was in town, Bob Hope, Jackie Leonard, uh, Milton Berle, they would come in and they would heckle Perry from the audience during dress rehearsal. Uh, and, and it was unbelievable. Any, every, every, any comedian was in town. And Nick Perry would say, well, those guys are funny, but you guys will never be on the show. And it was a great interaction. And one night I had to go, I had to go do something. I took a, I said to a page who'd never been on the stage door. He, I said, take the door. And if they're not on the list, they can't come in. Right. And I'm walking back. And I see Freddie Fields, the legendary agent. <laughs> and the guy, the guy on the door says to him, I'm sorry, Mr. Fields, you're not on the list. And he looks and he goes, kid, I am the list. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Mr. Fields, come with me. Perry's waiting for you. <laughs> kid, I am the list. <laughs> That's great. But, and then, you know, I, I worked for a company out of Philadelphia. They moved me out. I started in sports. I started doing live sports. In New York. Um, when did you meet the president? I met the president in 1960. And it wasn't at NBC. It was at the Biltmore Hotel. Okay. And I went in to volunteer weeks before that, even before the we had won the nomination. And there was a guy named Harry Brandt who owned all the Brandt theaters. 
and he was the chairman. I said, I'd like to help. Figuring out, <laughs> I don't know what I'll do. He says, he says, you're just out of college. I think I was just out. And he says, you're now in charge of, you're ahead of all the young Democrats in the state. <laughs> I said, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and, and, and he says, neither does anyone else. You're it. <laughs> so, uh, the first time Kennedy came in, after the nomination, it was a big thing in the ballroom, and I was late. The second floor was our headquarters, Biltmore Hotel. And so I uh, was late to go down to the ballroom, and I'm waiting for the elevator. The elevator opens, and this guy gets off, and he goes, I'm Jack Kennedy. Who are you? And, I, I, and you said, I am the list. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> well, it gets better what actually, what actually he said. So he says, I'm embarrassed. I don't know where to go. I'm supposed to meet Mr. Brandt. I said, I'll take you to him. And we get in the elevator, and it's me and him. And I look around, and I look, and I go, Senator, I don't mean to be uh, presumptuous, but where's your campaign staff? <laughs> and he looks around the elevator, sees my Kennedy button, he goes, I guess it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with him about a dozen times. Every time he came to New York, uh, we, I would call, and we, at the beginning, we didn't have the crowds at the beginning. Uh, uh, and so I would call up all the Catholic colleges, and I would say, himself is coming. <laughs> we need him. And I remember once we were taking over Rockefeller Center, and it wasn't supposed to be, but it's owned by the Rockefellers, and we wanted to sneak 200 girls onto the rink and another 1,000 to get the crowds crazy. And I called the Mother Superior at Marymount, and I said, Mother Superior, He's coming. And she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can't do it. It's finals. I said, we need it. We need the girls. And she said, how many do you need? I said, 300. <laughs> and she says, it's finals. I said, but we need we need the girls. She said, I'll be there, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had the Kennedy girls with the hats. They called the skimmer hats. It was straw hats. We had this thing, give change for a change. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So even back then, you were getting girls for Kennedy. No, I wasn't getting girls for Kennedy. What the great stories was, I mean, I was with him in the Garmin Center rally when we thought we were going to get killed because the crowd was a million people, and we were on a little platform against the building. And he pulls up. I go, don't go into the crowd. Don't go into the crowd. And he goes, that was my job, to get him up, right? And, he's got, he, he's, and he smiles at me, walks right into the crowd, which probably was a, a calming thing because the crowd was surging. And a million people within eight blocks uh, in the Garmin Center of 8th Avenue. And so he goes into the crowd, 
And he come, comes up the steps and he looks at me and he goes, you got to have more faith. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the last time I saw him alive, although I was with him in the crowd, but was he was leaving the Carlisle Hotel and uh, Jackie was pregnant, eight or nine months pregnant uh, with the child who died, Patrick, and later on. And he was going on the rest of the campaign tour, and she was going home to Hyannisport. So we're rushing him to the car, and I hear Mrs. Kenny going, Jack, Jack, Jack. And I, as he's getting into the limo, he's going to be gone for three weeks, right? I said, Senator, Mrs. Kennedy wants you to say goodbye to her. He goes, he says, he goes, I owe you one, kid. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, let's segue into another person who uh, is no longer with us uh, and uh, somebody who uh, you, I would say, had a unique collaboration with uh, when it came to creating Saved by the Bell and getting it on the air. Take us back, because this was the first. Well, this is a story I have to, you're involved in. Uh, Brandon Tartikoff. So let's, yeah, Brandon Tartikoff, who was... The young 28-year-old, not at that time, but he had been made the 28-year-old president of NBC Entertainment. One day, Barry and I were having one of our breakfasts, and I said, it's some show you were doing, wasn't with me. And I said, Barry, how much do you believe in your show? He said, a lot. I said, how much? I said, would you do anything? He said, just about. I said, would you lie down the president of NBC's office and refuse to leave his office unless he gave you 13 more episodes or called security? He said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, that's what I did. We only had seven Saved by the Bell. But let's go back because mm-hmm. I think this is important oh. because one of the things you always shared with me, because I always personally, as a manager and maybe in any profession you're in who's listening, mm-hmm. A lot of times, no matter where you are in the business, your perception of yourself is not always what it, it is. And a lot of times, your perception of yourself is, is, is lower than what where you actually are. And for me, I've always had this thing where I've never felt like I was where I, I wanted to be or should be, even though I know that, you know, realistically, uh, you know, things obviously haven't gone uh, badly. And... um when you're in your 40s or in, heading into your 50s, you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a show that went to syndication. I'm having breakfast with a guy who has had like six or seven shows in syndication. Uh, you know, when is it going to happen? When will it happen? How will things fall into place? Even though people in the industry think that it's all fallen into place for me in other areas, when is it going to be? And Peter was such a calming influence to me because he was the type of guy who really made it late uh the age that he uh, uh came up with and and started pitching to sell saved by the bell i believe he was in his mid to late 40s maybe even close to uh 50 maybe even 50 yeah so he really had gone a long period of time without really making any significant money, without really making a dent in the business. Nobody really was cared. giving him the time of day. <laughs> Nobody really cared about him. And here's a guy who was heading, you know, maybe 50 years old. And, you know, when was it going to happen for him? But his faith never wavered. And I want you to tell us about how Saved by the Bell okay. came about, how you got to the okay. uh, the in next that, level in, with that show. In 1986, Brandon and I had breakfast at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we had had some confrontations 
over several pilots uh, uptown Saturday night with Cleavon Little and uh, California Girls, which was girls at the, the lifeguards at the beach. And uh, he said, to him, we had not seen each other in about six or eight months. And then we, we had had some confrontations, uh, mainly not his fault, but his boss at the time, Dick Ebersole. Now he was the head guy. And he says to me, where are you, where are you hanging? Where are you, where are you, where are you at? I said, I'm in Brentwood. <laughs> he said, well, why don't you come to NBC, NBC Productions? I'm really just starting to gear it up. And why don't you come? Um, why don't you come for a year or two? So I said, okay. So I went to, so I went to NBC. I was the lowest paid producer in the building. <laughs> and, and we weren't on a lot like I was later when we had our own company, our own wing of a building. Uh, we were on Lancashire, NBC Productions. And one day uh, I came home. My wife said, how was your day? I said, well, Brandon and I had a meeting. Brandon says he wants me to do a Saturday morning live action comedy uh, because they're losing the high end. And I and she said, that's great. You, the boys were like three and five at the time. And he, and you've always wanted to do a show. They could grow up with like happy days. She, I, I said, yeah. She said, why did you tell him? I told him to get someone else. <laughs> <laughs> she said, what? He's giving you, you know, uh, he's, he's giving you a, a time slot perhaps. And you said, no. I said, yeah, I said, no. So uh, I said, that was stupid, huh? So I went back and I um, said, I'll do it. I'll have a show for you in four weeks. I'll have a concept in four weeks. And uh, and I started to write this concept um, of an untitled show with a kid named Zach who was a con man, but a lovable con man. And I remember writing the first scene, and my daughter was out for the summer, who was the same age, a little younger than the Bell kids, as it turned out. And I said, what do you think of this scene? She says, I'm in love with Zach. I said, what do you mean you're in love with, with Zach? <laughs> he doesn't exist. He's a name. He says, I'm in love with Zach. Anyway, so we came back and we pitched the show. And uh, about it was really uh, a week in the life of. From the, when the, when, from the bell rang Monday morning to when the bell rang Friday. And the first year or two, year and a half, we only covered Monday through Friday. And then we went to the beach. We went to Vegas. We went to Hawaii. Well, those were movies, but we also uh, incorporated weekends and all that. And we pitched the show and Brandon had a bad cold. And by this time, I had a couple of writers on with me, even though I had written. And, and I said, when we go to see Brandon, you don't say a word unless he asks you a direct question. Do you understand that? And when you, when, when you, he asks you a question, it's quick and we get out of there as quickly as possible. This Brandon has some of the greatest ideas and he has some of the worst ideas and we can't wait around for his worst ideas. So he, Brandon had a cold and he's apologizing that he's not up to snuff, which I was delighted because we couldn't get any stupid ideas in. And, and what I didn't know was he wanted a junior high school show, and he didn't know, and I didn't say it, that it was the first day of high school. That's when the show started, because I knew we were going to go to the mat on this. And we pitched the thing, and he approves everything. He asked the guys a few questions. Uh, he knew some of them from other shows. And all of a sudden, he said, what are we going to call this thing? I said, I don't know. And he said, how about, he, how about at the bell or when the bell rings? 
And I said, no, you already did a pilot that failed called at the bell about construction workers. And Tom Tenowitz, who was my number one guy, goes, how about say by the bell? And I look at him. And if a look killed, he would have been dead, vaporized. And and Brand says, I like that. See if we'll clear. <laughs> and I, we walk out of the meeting. I go, that's the stupidest fucking idea <laughs> I've ever heard. Saved by the bell. I ain't calling my, I ain't calling my show Saved by the bell. And I say to Franco Barrio, who is my line producer, all right, go through the motions and hopefully it won't clear. The next day I go into stage nine. <laughs> Over the door is a sign, Saved by the Bell. <laughs> and, and that's how brilliant I was. The second thing with Saved by the Bell was, the second thing of Saved by the Bell was the song. I had five composers come in, and I gave the notion, no bells, no lyrics Saved by the Bell, no ringing bell. I don't want to hear anything about bells. Five guys come in. The first four guys, it was nothing special. Scotty Gale comes in. And when I w- the bell rings on his recording, when I wake up in the morning, and, the bell, and the, my staff thinks I'm going to kill him. I'm, they, they're looking at me. He's going to kill him. And I go, that's it. Don't listen to me. <laughs> and that's how Saved by the Bell came about. Talk about the casting. The cast was amazing. Amazing. We, I remember we, the key was Zach, who talked to the camera. And Brandon wanted him to be like Bilko in the Phil Silver show. He conning the colonel, your eminence, your highness. And none of the guys could con and you liked them. So he had to lie to you and he had to smile and you had to love him, which was very difficult. And one day, my casting director, who I, I would call her every day. At three, who was your Robin cast? Lippin. I'd call at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, She's and uh, incredible, say, Robin Lippin. And I, we were on stage nine. And I would go in the offices where Ellen, I think Ellen is now, uh, Elena is now. And I, and I would say, if we don't have Zach, we don't have a show every day. And I looked down in the parking lot like an hour later, and there'd be Marissa Govins, who was my producer at the time, with her arm around Robin, walking around <laughs> the lot. And one day she called me and she said, I found Zach. And, he came in with that big smile, and he had dyed his hair blonde. I would have changed the hair color right away if I knew he had dyed it for an Alan Arkin PBS, which was his first job. It was uh, some drama he was in. So he'd only booked one job. Well, wait. I see him. I said, this kid can speak English. He's got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and he had it. And he had it. And, and I, again, I didn't know about the dyed hair. As Aaron Spelling said to me, I bet on that show you spent as much time with the hairdressers as I did on 90210. <laughs> I said, yeah, if I knew he didn't have really blonde hair, I would have changed the description of the hair. <laughs> right? It's the first thing you change. You know, 6'2 blonde, that goes out the window right away for a 5'4 midget who's black, <laughs> if he's the right guy. So one day we're bringing back screeches, and, and, and Mark Paul says to me, you know, he, we already said on him, or going to be, he's, you know, Screeches out there. I said, yeah, that, was that kid Dustin Diamond, we're going to bring him. No, no, he is Screech. I said, what do you mean? He's Screech in real life. And he's, and I said, all right, well, and he was. And we hired him. It turned out he was only 11. I misread <laughs> his birth certificate. And he was with me 11 years. He was only 22. <laughs> he was the assistant principal of the new class, say, by the bell. And he was only 17. <laughs> and he'd gone to college with this rhyme time show. <laughs> he wasn't even old enough yet. And so 
I misread it. I thought it was a January birthday, and we were okay. The other kids are fourteen, going on fifteen. He's thirteen. He'll be thirteen. And the second episode, I said to Mark Paul, "What's with Dustin? He's such a kid. He's he's only eleven. He's only eleven. He said. I said I would never hire him." And the same thing with Mario. Wasn't with Mario Lopez. Mario Lopez. We couldn't find Slater. Slater was supposed to be Vinny Barberini with a leather jacket from Welcome Back, Carter. Italian kid who was a street kid who was an army brat. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, I just don't like them. And one night I pick up the phone, I think it was stoned. <laughs> and, and No, I wasn't stoned those days, <laughs> I forgot. And and I, I called my casting director and I said to her, where is it written that Slater has to be Anglo? She says, you wrote it. I said, well, he doesn't have to be Anglo. Find me, find me an Asian, find me anyone, but I, I don't like what we're seeing. And um, she calls me. I found Slater. Mario walks in with the dimples, right? And I said, he's Slater. And we didn't deal with his name, that he didn't play with a Latin name. And the same thing with Log Flores. I won the first diversity award from the Academy. Cosby called me a hero. We're sitting there, and they bring Lock Voice, and she was supposed to, Lisa Turtle was supposed to be a Jewish princess from Great Neck, Long Island, who, who I knew, who moved out to California, and the f- princess. And they had brought Lock Voice in for a guest spot down the line. We weren't in production yet. We were still writing scripts. And I said, have a read. And they said, have a read for what? I said, have a read for Lisa Turtle. They said, well, Lisa Turtle's not black. I said, she is now. <laughs> and that's how, that's, how, um, that's how that came about. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, You'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And uh, just uh, tell us about some of the people that you brought on the show, that you gave an opportunity to throughout the years that had never done anything in their lives and they became huge, huge stars or at Uh, least household names. um, Well, of course, Elizabeth Berkeley and and, and Tiffany Ambethese. And Tiffany... Tiffany... No one wanted Tiffany but Brandon and I. My staff was up in arms, the director... I said, I know, she can't walk, she can't talk, and she can't chew gum at the same time, but she's going to be a major star. And they were pissed. <laughs> and, it, and people don't remember that Elizabeth Berkeley and her were both up for the same part. And then we just, and, 
and kind of had conflict with the two of them for the five, six years. And, and, and you know, all of them were new. Uh, Mario had been the drummer on Kids Incorporated. Uh, but some of the people, Denise Richards, we gave her first job to. Leah Remini was with us for six. Um, Scott Wolf was with us. I didn't even know he was with us. In People Magazine, he stopped me. We had regular extras. They were in the glee. They were in every class. You know, if they go on the glee club, it's on the basketball team with certain extras. And I didn't realize that he <laughs> had been with us for five years. Um, who else? Bridget Wilson, who married Pete Sampras. Zach, do I have lipstick on my teeth? <laughs> and um, who else? Uh, was there ever anybody that you brought on the show that, that you had the fire? The big model. What was her name? Kathy Ireland. Kathy Ireland. There was a, Zach and Kelly were together, and we had to break them up. Because Zach on the loose is fun. Zach married or going steady is not fun. And it was funny, the day when the kid from, um, uh, from Melrose Place kisses her, the audience is screaming, booing. And between scenes, Zach and Mark, Paul, and Tiffany come to me and say, we don't want to break up. <laughs> I said, you're not breaking up. Kelly and Zach are breaking up. People were booing and screaming from the audience when she kissed the other guy. Um, but Kathy Island, we needed to give Zach someone to cheat on Kelly with. This was before they broke up, right? And we bring it. We want the hot nurse. <laughs> Kathy Island, the swimsuit. You know, um, Sports Illustrated model. But Kathy couldn't talk, okay? And she must have dazzled us in the office <laughs> because I hired her on the spot. Um, I, I think she read. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> so we're at the table reading. Now, everyone at the table reading, same thing at the dinner, sat. Like Mario always sat next to me. There was a table and the cast. Mario always sat there. There's one there. And... We start the reading, and the kids are only 14 at the time. Maybe Elizabeth was 15. And every time, so we go around the table, Cassie's line comes, and she had his eye twice. And one, and Mark Paul puts down his script <laughs> and looks at me. Uh -huh. And by the, by the second scene, the second act, Every one of them are waiting for Kathy to talk. <laughs> I mean, every one of them have their script down. They do, the, and they're waiting like this, and she just wasn't up to it. Okay, so now I say to my director, "I'm going to come down when you're getting her scene staged." I never come down on Monday. I never come down unless there's a problem until Tuesday run through. I want them to have their time, right? And. I'm down the set at 2 in the afternoon. Everybody knows why I'm there, right? And uh, and she just she just couldn't do, do, do the part. And so I call her manager. It's a terrible thing. But she's a huge success. She could buy and sell us 20,000 <laughs> times over. And he says, you're firing Kathy Island? And I was a wise ass on the call because he was, like, fighting me. Like, I wanted to fire her, right? I mean, I'm the one who reached out for her and called. Could we have Kathy Island? And he says to me, I can't believe what you're doing. I said, well, I got to tell you the truth. You got to get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> and then you remember that movie, the volleyball movie, Side Out? Uh -huh. You see it for the first time in the courtroom. Stan Dragati would come on the set and Kathy do it this way. Anyway, Bell. Okay, the big story of Bell yeah, was, so would you lie down? Okay. I remember one night, we were not even on the air. And, the, you know, the, the gate, you know, with the 
reception is, the glass building. Mm -hmm. um, I get a call. I have 300 girls here, says the security. They won't go home unless Mark Paul comes down and signs some autographs. It's like 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> All right, so I go. How many episodes into your three. season? We weren't three. on the air yet. So you weren't even on the no, air No, we yet. had seven episodes. That's all we had. Okay? You had seven episodes. Nothing had aired yet, but they're outside. And we were going on in prime time. How do they know? What, what are they? How do those 300 girls? They were at the taping. Oh, we would bust okay. in all the I teenage girls. I understand. We would bust them in so yeah. we could control when they left. Got it. Or when they got there on time, we controlled the buses. Okay? So if you, want, you want the audience to be there when you need them. So I bring them down, and you have the set of glasses, then there's a reception, then there's a parking lot, right? And he looks at me, and he goes, don't leave me alone. And I looked at Mark Paul. I said, your life will never be the same after tonight. And when he went to Paris, midnight with Tiffany Amethyst and 10,000 kids at the Gaulle Airport, breaking down things in Philadelphia, Taco Bell with Mario, and he hid from the crowd. They broke down the walls. I mean, it was amazing. So we only have seven, right? And we go on the air in prime time. And at 7 in the morning, I get a call from Brandon. You beat family ties. We were after them. Then we, were on a, we were on three nights. To let you know how uh, you know tough it was, and the competition, believe it or not, was, was fierce. Because you think it's more fierce because there's more networks, but it, it, it wasn't. You were, you were up against well, behemoths. I had a, my my lead-in was a chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> and the Smurfs won my lead out. I was against a rabbit, a bear, and a racer. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck's gonna find our show? Right? So we go on in prime time, and I, the worst reviews ever, even though we won in the ratings. Uh, what kind of name, this woman in the LA Times, what kind of name is Tiffany Amber Thiessen? What kind of review is that? And they felt sorry for the kids. The San Francisco Examiner and the New, and the New York Papers in LA destroyed us. They felt sorry that the, for the kids on Saturday morning that the show was going to be for them. And I got interviewed. I said, the kids will be there. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know we had, we had developed a whole thing that never existed, tweens and teens, right? So, all of a sudden, I get a call from this writer in San Diego. He says, how you doing? I said, well, the review. He says, don't worry. The review is going to be different in San Diego and in the, mid in the heart of America. Uh, he's my kids' daughters love the show. And all of a sudden, the reviews started coming in Atlanta and Chicago. Love. I get calls from friends. Marcy Carsey, Carsey Werner, who I'd known for years. Uh, why We both had our kids to live in the same hospital at the same time. She's my kid called me. My kids love Saved by the Bell. I never heard anything love Saved by the Bell. So we had seven. We go, we're going on the air now on Saturday morning, and they're planning to mix it with 13 bombs, two of this from Egypt and something from Tanzania <laughs> and crap that they had bought. And I say, we're going we're gonna to die. We're going to be off in seven weeks. So I go up to Brandon's office. John Agolia, the head of business affairs, is there. Who doesn't want to spend a dime? Um, Kevin Riley's there, who's the just out of college, who's the exec on the show, and we, you know, he the he, current executive at a network. Yeah. Again, yeah. Uh, you have people the, the who are signed to. There is. <laughs> <laughs> we would give him notes on how he was giving notes. You're <laughs> not sitting up straight, and we name Screech's robot after him, Kevin, right? Kevin the robot, and. <laughs> 
And I still have the same trouble with him today. <laughs> now he's the chairman of Fox. So um, they're in the room, and I said, Brandon, you know me. Have I ever – you've seen the audience. Oh, he also said, am I the only one who thinks they're in junior high? I said, yes. <laughs> I said, you've sat in the audience. You've seen the screaming. You saw the – we will be off the air in seven weeks if you mixed it in with all that broken crap you have. And – and I said, I've never said to you, this can't, something can't miss. These kids are going to be the hottest things in the world. I didn't really believe it. <laughs> and, and, and he said, I have no money. You're not getting it. And I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lie down on the floor in front of your desk. And I'm going to stay there until you give me 13 or you take me out in chains. <laughs> and John Agolia says, he's right, but I'm getting out of here. And, and Kevin, Bolts for the door. <laughs> and Brand goes, very funny, very funny. And I lie down in front of his desk. And he starts running calls to Mike Ovitz at CVAA and this one and that one. And, and, you know, and I keep popping up. I keep popping up with my hands <laughs> like this. 13 a call security. Very funny. His wife calls. She says, a maniac on my floor. <laughs> and, and, um, and finally, I said, and finally, he looks at me, he goes, all right, kid, kid, I'm like 20 years old, <laughs> 10 years old. And you're like, all right, you got 13 more. And I head for the door, <laughs> and I don't want to look around. And he says to me, and he says to me, Peter. And I go, what? He says, knock it out of the park. Incredible And the rest story. is history, 85 countries, uh, 11 years of different bells, uh, it was it was the greatest journey, greatest ride of my life. Wow, great ride for so many people who've seen the show. That's uh, just That's unbelievable. It. And again, it's a, a testament to the persistence and, if and I didn't not do following that, the rules of the game. Because you didn't follow. If you had followed the rules of the game, you wouldn't have gotten. Well, that. when I went to the meeting, I thought I would make a case, and he would say yes. <laughs> I didn't plan for him to say no, and when he did, I was desperate. And in retrospect, if I hadn't done that. Would have been seven weeks and out. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. 
And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.